I want to thank Derek for leading the meeting tonight. It's, um, it's good to be with you again tonight just to look again at this great subject of Israel in the Word of God and God's dealings with them. Uh, tonight I was particularly thinking, well through the week I was particularly thinking of the land and the throne. I think we've all been thinking about the land in the last week that has passed or the last few days and the, the vile atrocities uh, that have taken place there perpetrated by wicked and evil men. And um, we just want to uh, look at the scriptures tonight and consider the land and we want to consider the throne as well. Um, I think the last question the Lord or the disciples ever asked the Lord was, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And the Lord's reply was, It's not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father has placed in his own power. The Lord didn't say there wouldn't be a kingdom in Israel. But those times and those seasons will yet come. The king is coming. And uh, we want to think about that a little bit tonight as well. But we want to turn first of all to Genesis chapter 12. And I know that you know these verses. They're very, very uh, familiar to us. Genesis chapter 12. In verse 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation. And I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abraham was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. And Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and, and all their substance that they had gathered, and the souls that they had gotten in Haran. And they went forth to go into the land of Canaan. And into the land of Canaan they came. And Abram passed through the land unto the place of Sachem, unto the plain of Morah. And the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. May the Lord bless to us this reading of his own precious inspired truth. Last Wednesday evening we thought a little of Israel, uh, the nation of God's choosing, the chosen nation. And in particular those words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 11 and verse 29 where he says the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. That is without a change of mind on God's side. 
God remains faithful to his promises. The promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. We also thought of Israel's present condition. How that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Israel's blindness is not total, but partial. There is a remnant even today according to the election of grace. And that blindness is not permanent, but temporary. Blindness in part is happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. There will come a time when the full number of those called out from amongst the nations and formed into the body of Christ will be removed. The church will be removed. We thought also of those events that will follow the rapture. What Israel will yet have to pass through before the deliverer comes to Zion. We looked at Jeremiah chapter 30 and the time of Jacob's trouble which lies ahead for Israel. Those verses, alas, for the day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. A time also spoken of by the Lord in Matthew 24, where he is upon the the Mount of Olives speaking to his disciples, and he speaks about the great tribulation period. The Lord says in Zechariah 13 and verse 9, And I will bring the third part through the fire, and will refine them as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them. I will say it is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. It is evident from these words that two-thirds of the nation will not survive the great tribulation period. These days are yet to come, but we see them clearly on the horizon And we see them a lot sharper this Wednesday night than we did last Wednesday night. And the hatred and viciousness of Israel's enemies at this present time. A verse we didn't touch on last week, and uh, it was remiss of me not to do it, uh, is in Romans chapter 11 and verse 28, where the Apostle Paul says, and he's speaking to Christians, he's speaking to Gentile believers And he's speaking about unbelieving Israel. And he says, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes. Paul here does not sugarcoat these words. He doesn't mince his words. This is the reality of Israel's position today. In their blindness, they are enemies of their own Messiah, and those who acknowledge him. No one knew this better than Paul, for Saul of Tarsus had been a fierce enemy of the gospel. You remember Saul of Tarsus, uh, how that when he was converted on the Damascus road, the Lord sent a disciple to him, Ananias, 
And Ananias didn't want to go at all. And he said, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. Yet we know on the Damascus road, free grace awoke him by light from on high. Is anything or anybody too hard for the Lord? But as the Apostle Paul, he now experienced the other side of, of that animosity towards the gospel, the verbal and physical opposition of his own nation. In Acts 22 and 22, they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. In 2 Corinthians 11 and 24, the apostle says, Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. And yet, the very same apostle, in Romans chapter 9 and verse 3, could wish himself accursed from Christ for his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. The nature of that love, of course, was self-sacrificing. It was indeed the love of Christ that constrained Paul. He says here, as concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Israel is beloved for the Father's sakes. That's the fathers of the nation. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What a paradox we have in these words. Enemies, yet beloved. We looked at those words from Romans chapter 9, verses 4 to 5, where we have that remarkable list of Israel's blessings and Israel's privileges. Who are Israelites? To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises? And then Paul says in verse 5, Whose are the fathers and of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. Think of those little words at the end of that list. And the promises, whose are the fathers? These are again God's unconditional promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It must be remembered, beloved, that Paul is speaking about Israel here, not before, but after they have rejected Christ. Those promises still remain. Paul finishes this remarkable list of Israel's blessings with the greatest blessing of all, of whom concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. We know he came unto his own, 
And when he came, he took upon him not the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. The Samaritan woman at Sychar's well first recognized that the man who spoke with her was a Jew. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, who am a woman of Samaria? There is a verse in Romans chapter 15 which is often overlooked, and it connects the blessed person who came with the promises made to the fathers. Romans 15 and verse 8 says, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, literally the Jews, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. As we said at the very beginning last week, He, the Lord Jesus, is the yea and amen of every promise of God. Not some promises, but every promise of God. When Paul speaks about the gifts and the calling of God in Romans chapter 11 and 29, he takes us back to the foundation of the nation of Israel, to the call of Abraham in Genesis 12. Abraham, of course, is the father of the Hebrew nation. The Lord says to Israel in Isaiah 51 and verse 2, Look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bare you, for I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. It is a blessed truth, and I believe a wonderful truth, that even before the Lord had called Abram from out of Ur of the Chaldeans, before he had made great and precious promises to him concerning the nation, concerning the land, concerning the seed, the Lord had already made space for the children of Israel upon the earth. The Lord had already set aside a land. In the previous chapter, Genesis chapter 11, when the whole earth was of one language and one speech, the men of the earth came to the plain of Shinar. And they said in verse 4, Let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the earth. Here was a unity, but it was a unity without God, and a unity opposed to God. Men are striving for such a unity today. And the Lord came down in judgment and confounded their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And verse 8 says, So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of the whole earth. Here the Lord separated the sons of Adam. Moses speaking to the nation of Israel on the threshold of the promised land, looking back to Genesis chapter 11, 
he says, remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father, and he will show thee. Thy elders, and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Beloved, here we have history from God's perspective. Here we have geography from God's perspective. Israel is at the center of God's dealings upon the earth. This tiny strip of land in the Middle East, the Lord had it in view when he separated the sons of Adam and divided to the nations their inheritance. After the failure of those nations in Genesis chapter 11, the Lord called just one man out from amongst the nations. In Ur of the Chaldeans, Abraham and his family were idolaters. Joshua reminds Israel of that fact in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2. He says, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. When Stephen stood up before the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7 and verse 2, shortly before he was about to be stoned to death, he tells them that it was the God of glory who appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. It was the free grace of God that intervened with Abraham and called him to himself. Abraham was not only called from idolatry, he was called to blessing. The Lord bestowed blessing upon blessing upon him. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee. I will make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee. I will curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. I've heard our, our dear brother, Pastor Sam Carson, say on several occasions that Abraham's blessings were three-dimensional. They were, first of all, national. I will make of thee a great nation. That great nation is still with us today. And secondly, they were personal. I will bless thee and make thy name great. And thirdly, they were universal. In thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. You will notice 
Immediately in Genesis 12, the Lord mentions a land. Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And again, in Genesis 12 and verse 7, the Lord promises the land. And oftentimes, we consider Abraham's obedience. And oftentimes, we consider Abraham's faith, and rightly so. But just for a little while tonight, I wanted to consider the Lord's promise. The Lord's promise of a land, the promised land. And the Lord's promise of a seed, the chosen seed. Verse 7, it says, And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Here we have the land promised and also identified. This land. Verse 6 says, of course, the Canaanite was then in the land. It was the land of Canaan. Today, this land is the most hotly disputed and contested piece of real estate on the planet. You only have to look at the news in the past week to realize that. Here also, Abraham is promised seed. At this point, Abraham and Sarah are childless. But now we see that the land and the seed are linked together. Unto thy seed will I give this land. In Genesis 13, the Lord renewed his promise to Abraham. After Lot had chosen the well-watered plain of Jordan and pitched his tent towards Sodom, Genesis chapter 13 and verse 14, the Lord said unto Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. The Lord said to Abraham in verse 17, Arise, walk through the land in the length of it and in the breadth of it, for I will give it unto thee. Beloved, this was not a spiritual land. We hear many things said about Canaan and many hymns written about Canaan, but this was not a spiritual land. It was a physical land that Abraham could walk through. Hebrews 11 and 9, By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. There are, of course, two ways in which Abraham's seed is brought before us 
in the Word of God. First of all, there are those born of Abraham's line who are Abraham's seed. But also, in Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 6 that even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. Verse 29 of that chapter tells us, And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed. In this spiritual way, we as believers upon the Lord Jesus Christ are the seed of Abraham because we have the same faith as Abraham. But what is meant by the seed referred to in these verses? In particular, when we come to Genesis chapter 15, if we turn to Genesis chapter 15 tonight, here Abraham inquires of the Lord, saying in verse 2, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless. And in verse 3, Abraham said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed. Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, speaking of Eliezer of Damascus, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. Clearly, This is a literal, physical seed. A son coming from his own body. Later in this chapter, the Lord speaks of thy seed in relation to the fledgling nation of Israel in Egypt. Verse 13. Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years, and also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterwards shall they come out with great substance. Here Israel is spoken of as Abraham's seed, the natural seed, if you like. In Isaiah 41 and verse 18, We read, But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. It is interesting, and I only say it in this way, it is interesting that in Genesis chapter 13 and verse 16, the Lord had said to Abraham, And I will make thy seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man can number the dust of the earth, then shall thy seed also be numbered. And in Genesis 15 here, in verse 5, the Lord says to Abraham, Look now towards heaven, and count the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed 
be. Here we have an earthly aspect to Abraham's seed. And we also have a heavenly aspect to Abraham's seed. In Genesis 15, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham concerning the land and concerning his seed. We know that a covenant is usually between two contracting parties with certain conditions to be observed on either side. The covenant made with Israel at Sinai, we talked about this last week, and the giving of the law was a conditional covenant. God covenanted to give Israel peace, prosperity, and blessing in the land. And Israel covenanted to keep the law. But Israel broke the law. The Lord says, which covenant they break. But there are those unconditional covenants in Scripture. That is covenant made by the Lord himself and not dependent on man keeping his side of the covenant. Therefore, those covenants cannot and will not fail because they have only one side, and that's the Lord, and he cannot fail. The scripture says that they are ordered in all things and sure. The first unconditional covenant in scripture, the Lord made with Noah and his sons. After the flood, and you remember it, of course, in Genesis chapter 8 and 22, the Lord says, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Beloved, this cuts across much of the agenda that we hear today regarding these these things that scientists say. The Lord says, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is upon, that is with you for a perpetual generation. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Satan has made this to be quite another symbol in these days. But the Lord's covenant remains sure and he has set his bow in the cloud as a token of it. The second unconditional Covenant the Lord made with Abraham here in Genesis chapter 15. And this covenant concerned the land and Abraham's seed. The Lord told Abraham, and we won't go into all the details, he told him to take a heifer and of three years old and a goat of, of three years old and a ram of three years old and a turtle dove. And of course he separated all those animals. Abram was instructed to form two rows and to put one bird and then half a portion of each animal in both rows. 
And the idea, of course, was that both parties would walk between the two rows. In doing so, they were pledging that they would not default from the blood covenant that was made. But when everything was in order, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham. And in verse 18, it says there, in the same day, the Lord, and it's in capitals, Jehovah, made a covenant with Abraham, saying, unto thy seed will I give this land from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river of Euphrates. The Lord's covenant with Abraham brought together the two great promises that were given in Genesis chapter 12 concerning the land and the seed and confirmed in Genesis 13. Here the Lord puts these promises into an everlasting covenant of which he alone was the only contracting party. The covenant was not dependent on Abraham, but upon the Lord alone. In Exodus chapter 2 and verse 24, God heard the groaning of his people in Egypt and came down to deliver them. He remembered his covenant with them. What a contrast with Israel who soon forgot his law, but he remembered his covenant. The Lord is faithful to his word. Beloved, we're not counting on Israel. We're counting on the Lord. If you've any doubt about it, Psalm 105 and verse 8 is very specific concerning this covenant. It says there, He hath remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant he made with Abraham and his oath unto Isaac and confirmed the same unto Jacob for a law and to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying, what was the covenant all about? Saying, unto thee will I give the land of Canaan, the lot of your inheritance. When Paul is speaking to Gentile believers about their past in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, At that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. We were strangers from these covenants because they were only towards Israel. I know that some uh, Christians feel that if we give Israel 
its rightful place in Scripture, then in some way that robs us of blessing. I believe exactly the opposite. If we give Israel her rightful place in Scripture, it only magnifies the grace of God towards us. We who were afar off have been brought nigh by the precious blood of Christ. We know that Abraham never possessed the land in which he sojourned as a stranger, but he will in the resurrection. The Lord also confirmed his covenant with Isaac even before, even before Isaac's miraculous birth, the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 17 and 21, But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at the set time. And also with Jacob in Genesis 28 and verse 13. I don't know if we've time to deal with this, but just very, very briefly... Besides the Lord's unconditional covenant with Abraham to give him the land, the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, the Lord made a further unconditional covenant with David concerning his throne. We read about that covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12. If you could just turn to it for a moment. 2 Samuel 7. And we're breaking into it, of course, at verse 12. These are the words which the Lord gave Nathan the prophet to speak to David concerning his throne. Verse 12 says, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels. And I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build an house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father. I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever according to all these words and according to all the vision. So did Nathan speak unto David. Here's an everlasting kingdom. In Psalm 89 and verse 34, it is the Lord himself who speaks of those promises made to David as a covenant. He says, My covenant will I not break, nor after the thing that has gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. This covenant is confirmed and fulfilled only in David's seed. Both covenants come together and will have their ultimate fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1 
and verse 1. We read the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Both those covenants are fulfilled in him. At his first advent to the earth, the Lord was rejected as Israel's king. Before his wondrous birth, the heavenly messenger said to Mary in Luke 132, He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. The very first question of the New Testament is, where is he that is born king of the Jews? Zechariah 9 and verse 9, we have that wonderful prophecy of a coming king. And just listen to what it says, beloved. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly, and riding upon an ass and upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Those words were literally fulfilled in Matthew chapter 21. But Israel nationally did not acknowledge their rightful king. Though a little remnant recognized him. You remember Nathaniel was one of that remnant. And you remember the words of Nathaniel in John chapter 149. Whom the Lord called an Israelite indeed. Nathaniel says, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Those words echo down the centuries. For he will yet be King in Israel. Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 is read particularly through the Christmas season. And we'll hear it again and again. But thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah... Yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me. That is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Of course these words speak of our blessed Lord's first advent to the earth. But they also speak of a second advent to the earth. Those seven words at the end of that passage that is to be ruler in Israel. When has he ever been ruler in Israel? He was rejected as their king. The nation rejected him saying, we have no king but Caesar. When we think of a king, we think of a throne. In Matthew 25 and verse 31, the Lord Jesus said, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all his holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. These words refer to the Lord Jesus coming 
in his second advent to set up his millennial kingdom upon the earth. This is the kingdom referred to in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is the Lord's will being done on earth at the moment? Beloved, if the Lord's will was done on earth at the moment, we babies wouldn't be murdered in their womb of their mother. Men wouldn't be marrying men. But one day, Jesus shall reign. Where'er the sun doth its successive journeys run. At present, the Lord is seated on his Father's throne in heaven, at his Father's right hand. Matthew 25 and 31 looks forward to that time when he shall come to reign. Then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. The throne spoken of here is not in heaven, but upon the earth. There is only one throne upon the earth that scripture ever speaks of as the Lord's throne. In 2 Chronicles chapter 9, we read about the Queen of Sheba coming to Jerusalem to see Solomon. And when she saw all the wonders of Solomon, the scripture tells us that there was no more spirit within her. And she said in 2 Chronicles 9 and verse 8, Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighteth in thee to set thee on his throne to be king for the Lord thy God, because thy God loved Israel. It's the same throne spoken of by the heavenly messenger to Mary. God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Who was Solomon? He was the son of David, but a greater than Solomon is here. David's greater son. It's the same throne spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. We all know these words, and yet what do they actually say? For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Praise God, this has already happened. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. And then it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to order it and to establish it, with judgment. When the Lord comes, he'll establish the kingdom with judgment and justice from henceforth even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The Lord sent a word into Jacob and it has lighted upon Israel. You have to ask the question, beloved. Have these words been fulfilled yet? Is he now reigning upon the throne 
of his father, David. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 8, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. David is speaking by the Spirit, and he says, The Lord, that is the Father, said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. For 2,000 years the Lord has been at his Father's right hand, on his Father's throne. But in verse 2 of that same psalm, we hear the Father say to the Son, Not sit thou, but rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. The Lord awaits that command now. He is henceforth expecting. Where will he rule in the midst of his enemies? The Lord has no enemies in heaven. It will be upon the earth that he will reign a thousand years upon his own throne. God shall give unto him the throne of his father, David. When he comes, bear with me a moment. When he comes, Jerusalem will be surrounded. Zechariah 12, verse 2 says, Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in the siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that are burdened, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut into pieces. Though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. It is at this point that the deliverer shall come to Zion and rescue the remnant of Israel. And the Lord will establish his throne and his kingdom. That throne will be in Jerusalem. Again, Jeremiah looks to that time, and he says in Jeremiah 3 and verse 17, At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall be gathered unto it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. The Lord's righteous reign will follow upon his second advent to the earth and his victory over the nations gathered around Jerusalem. Satan will then be bound a thousand years. This period of a thousand years is mentioned no fewer than five times in Revelation 20 and verse seven, verses 1 to 7. It's a period when Satan will be bound. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, he will be bound. He will no longer be able to deceive the nations. No longer will he go about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. No longer blinding the minds of them that believe not. There are many scriptures and we don't have time to look at them tonight. There are many scriptures that speak of that blessed time that the Lord will bring upon the earth when the curse will be removed. 
a time when the Lord will reign in righteousness. Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 5. Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 9. And as I've said, many, many more. Zechariah says... In chapter 8 and verse 23, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even take hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There will be no anti-Semitism that day. The Lord will be in the midst of his redeemed people, Israel, who will then be the head of the nations and not the tail. Satan will then be loosed at the end of the millennial period. He'll be loosed from the abyss and there, there will be a final rebellion and he will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire and the eternal state will then begin where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and 28 says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, that is the Son, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts tonight for his blessing. Sorry again, we've been over the time.